Hey, what's up, y'all? It's your man Montel Jordan, and this is how we do it. And right now, you're listening to Legal Face Off on WGN Radio. That's right. You're locked onto the high energy legal podcast with lawyers Rich Lenkov and Tina Martini. And they're going to be trading jabs on the breaking news and the hottest issues, sports, entertainment, politics. Nothing is off limits. Keep listening because this is how we do it. Welcome into the latest installment of the Legal Face Off podcast on WGN Radio. I'm your moderator, Joe Brand. As always, we're joined by Tina Martini of McDermott, Will and Emery, Rich Lenkov of Downey and Lenkov. And we start today's show with the trial regarding Fox News in the 2020 election set to go in April. And there are some court filings to address. With that, we bring in George Freeman, former newsroom counsel to The New York Times for 30 years and current executive director at the Media Law Resource Center, a nonprofit membership association for media members and their defense lawyers. George, thank you very much for your time today. My pleasure. George, most of our listeners and viewers know this story, but just to recap, Dominion is suing Fox News for defamation. Uh, Dominion, of course, produces the some some voting machines, and they're uh, alleging that uh, Fox aired claims by President Trump and his allies that um, Dominion was involved in basically a uh, um, fraud during the 2020 election. Um, Fox News, which is the most watched cable news network gave a lot of time to Trump allies who were making these claims, among them the president of Fox News, Rupert Murdoch, uh, on-air talent like Sean Hannity, Laura Ingraham, um, Tucker Carlson, all questioned the validity of these claims later, as we learned through discovery. Basically, this lawsuit resulted in us discovering some emails between these parties in which they questioned the validity of the very allegations they were making on the air. Um, what is Fox's defense to these allegations? Well, they have two main defenses. One is actual malice, which is to say that the plaintiff in this country has to prove where the where it is a public figure, uh, which Dominion is, I think, uh, that the publisher, which is to say Fox News, uh, published, broadcast the uh, statements uh, with serious doubts that they were true, with a conscious awareness that they were probably false. And that's a very hard standard, um, <clears throat> but one which is appropriately hard because it gives us breathing room, us the media breathing room to make mistakes, to make innocent errors, but not to make deliberate falsehoods. And if indeed uh, uh, Fox was making deliberate falsehoods, then they would be in trouble. Uh, and that's one of the questions. I think, though, the better defense that they have and that what I would like to see, given more airtime and more publicity by the commentators on this case and by the Fox lawyers themselves, is the defense that really mirrors what they've been saying publicly. What they're saying publicly doesn't deal so much with actual malice, but it deals with the fact that the president was commenting and his allies were commenting on a presidential election. What could be more newsworthy than that? And therefore, they should be privileged to report what these people are saying, whatever the degree of truth or falsity in that statements, in those statements. And there is a legal defense for that called neutral reportage. And to me, this case presents a terrific opportunity to get this neutral reporter's defense more uh, recognized than it has been. It was developed in 1977 by the U.S. Court of Appeals uh, in New York, 
but only recognized by some states and not most courts. But yet in this case, which is so visible and where this defense is really at play as to what this case is all about, can you report the allegations, even the untrue allegations of newsworthy people? Because it's newsworthy to say that they said those things, even though we're not vouching for their truth. Should the media be allowed to do that? And that's really, I think, what this case is about. And the neutral reportage privilege says, yes, if it's newsworthy, you are allowed to do that which is different from normal law where you can't repeat someone's false statements. But neutral reportage puts two conditions on it. One is that the statement you're, the speaker you're repeating is uh, prominent and responsible. And secondly, that you repeat those statements objectively and neutrally, not endorsing or supporting them. And it seems to me those two conditions are really what this case is all about. But I'd like to see at least us get to that where the neutral reportage theory is recognized and then it would be up to the jury to decide whether those conditions were met or not. Can you tell us how the landmark U.S. Supreme Court decision, New York Times versus Sullivan, is relevant here? Well, it's relevant not to neutral reportage because neutral reportage is an exception to the usual rule that you're reliable for repeating libelous statements made by someone else. But Times v. Sullivan is relevant to the actual malice defense. And that defense is essentially that if you say something, whether you repeat or not, if you make a statement that's false, you're not automatically liable. It used to be the case that essentially there was strict liability. You were liable if you made a mistake and there were damages. Uh, But in 1964, the Supreme Court changed that to say that in our country, which believes in free speech and the public's, the importance of the public in getting information so that they can make wise choices of their own in their own life and in terms of voting in a democracy, there ought to be the broadest possible uh, allowance for information, even if those mistakes are made innocently. And they said in Times v. Sullivan, essentially, that the plaintiff has to prove that the journalists had serious doubts as to the truth, or had a serious uh, conscious awareness of its probable falsity. And that's the test that has to be met here. And the question is, all these emails we've seen uh, where different commentators are questioning the uh, acolytes of President Trump who went on the air, uh, you know, make it seem that a, a possible actual malice case, as hard as that standard is and ought to be, it could be made in this case because of some of the uh, emails we've seen. Now, whether it really works for each particular individual statement is another question, and that's one of the things, presumably, that will come out of trial. Whereas the neutral reportage, I want to get back to that because that's really interesting and, of course, very um, very relevant. If I was Dominion's lawyers, I guess I would say that that doesn't apply here because this isn't just neutral reporting, right? I mean, the the degree to which the Fox News on-air personalities were pushing these theories, I think, transformed this from just reporting to being, uh, you know, an advocate of those theories, right? That would be the argument. Whether that's true or not, I think, to your point, let the jury decide. But in this case, it would seem to be an easy argument. Just if you just look at the volume of these claims on Fox News versus every other, um, you know, apparently neutral or impartial, uh, you know, reporting site, you would at least argue that they were transformed from objective reporters to participants in the in those claims. No, I think 
you're exactly right. What that might come down to, though, is a question that I think is going to be the key question in the case that hasn't been discussed very much so far. And that is whether the judge is going to instruct the jury to make those determinations based on each separate individual statement, in which case it may be it may be quite difficult to make the showing you're talking about, because in one case they asked the question, in one case maybe they made commentary that made it sound like an opinion, which is not liable. Uh, in one case, maybe the knowledge of falsity came after the interview itself. So is the judge going to make the jury look at each individual statement that's alleged to be libelous separately? Or is it going to be more that the jury is going to decide on the gestalt of the coverage for the full month and say, hey, you know, they had these people on time and time again. There are all these memos. Uh, Dominion's going to have a, a stronger case, it seems to me, if the judge allows that. So what the instruction is and whether the jury will follow the instruction, which often juries don't do, I think is going to be vital in coming to the outcome. We're really short on time. This is fascinating stuff. We'd love to have you on again to discuss it further. But just uh, pivoting to, you know, kind of the broader uh, question of, you know, these continued attacks on the media. Um, We saw it as recently as over the weekend, right? Trump spoke in Waco um, before a huge crowd, uh, not coincidentally on the uh, on the anniversary of some of of the attacks in Waco. And he attacked the media, as he's always done. Right. Uh, In your current role and your prior role as a defender of the media and in particular, your prior employer, New York Times. And what are your What's your sense on these continued attacks on the media and how that uh, affects, you know, one of the most important parts of uh, of our society? I hate to say it, but I think uh, the president, former president's attacks through the years have been effective in bringing down the image uh, of the media in the public mind. And it's made uh, it easier for those who don't like the reporting of the media, largely because it's negative about them, such as. President Trump, it's made it easier for them to attack the media because if the president can talk about enemy of the people and fake news totally uh, meaninglessly, but repeated over and over and over, it's had an effect. Uh, And I think that's a really sorry state of affairs. And I think President Trump is, is fully to be blamed for that. Again, that's George Freeman of the Media Law Resource Center and formerly of the New York Times. George, thank you very much for the insight. Thank you. Rich Lenkoff is an attorney with Downey and Lenkoff, a firm with offices in Illinois, Indiana, and Wisconsin. Rich is consistently recognized by clients like McDonald's, Target, Macy's, Wendy's, and the Chicago Bears for his zealous advocacy and outstanding litigation results. Rich's many accolades include being named as an Illinois super lawyer from 2015 to present and leading lawyer from 2012 to present. These are designations given to less than 5% of Illinois attorneys. Rich is also an active member of his community, serving on the Legal Prep Charter Academy Advisory Board and the Northern Illinois University College of Law Board of Visitors. Rich is also a producer with credits including 85, the greatest team in football history, starring Barack Obama, Bill Murray, and Mike Ditka. Renegades, a Caesars Palace production starring Terrell Owens, Jose Canseco, and Jim McMahon, Rock of Ages, and Elvis Presley's Heartbreak Hotel in Concert. In addition to hosting WGN's Legal Faceoff since 2014, Rich serves as a legal analyst for a variety of media outlets. 
Downey and Lenkoff is a full-service litigation firm practicing general liability, workers' compensation, professional malpractice, and intellectual property, among other practice areas. For more information about Rich and Downey and Lenkoff, please visit dl-firm.com. Welcome back to the Legal Faceoff podcast on WGN Radio. The International Criminal Court has issued an arrest warrant for Russian President Vladimir Putin. We bring in Todd Buckwald, former ambassador, serves as the head of the Office of Global Criminal Justice at the U.S. Department of State, also a law professor at George Washington Law, and has also spent time legally advising for United Nations and political military affairs. Todd, thank you very much for the time today. It's great to be here. Thank you. Professor, yeah, as Joe mentioned, 10 days ago, the arrest warrant was issued for uh, an alleged scheme to deport Ukrainian children to Russia. And the court said that there are reasonable grounds to believe that Putin bears individual criminal responsibility for the alleged crimes, for having committed them directly alongside others, and for his failure to exercise control properly over civilian and military subordinates who committed the acts. Can you explain what those terms mean? Right. Well, for the ICC to conduct a trial, they have to have a body. There are no in absentia trials. They have to present um, evidence to the court. They have to get the arrest warrant issued by the judges and they have to persuade the the um, um, the judges that there's a basis to the charges. The charges in this case are Putin are against Putin um, and the um, children's commissioner acting personally as as um, direct perpetrators of um, the alleged offenses. And also in the case of Putin, the um, the idea is that he has responsibility as the leader, as a commander in the military would or as a civilian leader would to um, properly oversee those reporting to him, those working to him to prevent them from committing war crimes and atrocities. And there's a specific provision in the um, Rome Statute, which is the treaty that created the International Criminal Court laying out this idea of um, command or superior responsibility. So, Professor, the ICC has no police force of its own. So how would this warrant be enforced? Right. Um, the, the, the way it works, right, it's absolutely true. They, they have no police power. They, there are a lot of things they don't have. They're not a state. Um, the way that the treaty, the Rome Statute, this thing called the Rome Statute is set up, is the um, judges issue an arrest warrant. The um, um, the arrest warrant is distributed to the relevant states, to all the states' parties, sometimes to non-states' parties, to all the states' parties, though. And the um, the um, um, the court, so it's transmitted to the authorities, and the authorities in the states that receive these arrest warrants are under an obligation to arrest him and arrange for the transfer of the person to ICC custody um, under the under the Rome Statute Treaty. And um, you know, if the person is arrested, they make um, logistical arrangements with the registrar's office actually sort of, um, um, you know, to, to effectuate the, tra- the actual physical surrender. But the obligation runs to the, um, you know, from the court to the states who have been responsible for sort of doing the, doing the arrest. Professor, it's a widely accepted principle internationally that heads of states have immunity uh, from other courts. Why is this warrant not in conflict with that principle? Right. Well, the basic principle, the heart of the principle, the part that's absolutely clear is that heads of state have immunity from the jurisdiction of national courts, you know, U.S. court or Canadian court. The um, the issue of whether they have jurisdiction over uh, whether they have immunity from jurisdiction from an international court and maybe what constitutes qualifies as an international court for these purposes is actually debated. For its part, the ICC. Um, the ICC has um, previously ruled 
that the head of state immunity does not apply in front of it. And presumably that's very persuasive among the, the um, parties to the treaty who are under an obligation to obey the rulings of the ICC. Um, the, um, it's not entirely clear, though. I think other states can contest, you know, if I'm a state who has head of state immunity to protect my head of state, these other countries that um, would not be able to um, impinge upon the head of state immunity, how can they agree among themselves to create a thing that can impinge upon um, uh, my immunity as a, as a, um, as a non-consenting party? So it's debated. And it's one of the things that will continue to be debated. There's no question about it. But if I could add one other thing, I think in a way it misses the, an important part of the point, let me say, which is that the um, no head of state, Mr. Putin, President Biden, anybody else, no head of state has a right to travel to another country in the first place. So the, um, the way this will likely pay, play out in, 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 in reality is none of the ICC states are going to invite him to come in. Um, and, um, and he's not going to travel to any of these ICC states unless he gets iron, ironclad assurances that he won't be arrested in the first place. And that will, that will um, and, and in that way, it sort of operates as a, um, you know, a, a, a really effective travel ban that makes it, makes it um, uncomfortable, between uncom- very, very uncomfortable and impossible for um, him to travel. There's also a question, if I could just add one more thing, there's also a question about whether the, um, the head of state immunity could um, effectively be waived by the country that didn't, if the country did invite him in, they could say, yeah, you can come in, but we're not giving you head of state immunity. And it's not really clear why that would be impossible under international law. They could then, the Russians, the whoever could then accept or reject that condition. But it's, there's no rule that this, this is, the, the head of state immunity rules are sort of default rules of international law and can be um, um, superseded by any agreement that um, states agree to among themselves. So, Professor, assuming for the moment that Putin actually travels and subjects himself to the possibility of being arrested, wouldn't other governments be afraid to arrest Putin as the president of an oil-rich and nuclear-armed power who's shown a history of exacting revenge and carrying out assassinations? I think there is, you know, for better or worse, I think there's no question that that would have to be on the mind of any rational actor um, in, um, in, in such a position. Um, I think I've read things in the uh, press about the um, Russian statements that an an arrest of President Putin would be considered by the Russians an act of war. So it would have to be in their calculations. But I don't think that's the way it plays out, because there is no right to travel to these other countries. And any country that doesn't want to be in that position is going to say, don't come. And then he can't come. Professor, I mean, we're analyzing all this according to international law and and warrants and, and, you know, jurisdiction and venue and all that. But doesn't that sort of miss... The point in some respects when you're dealing with someone like Putin that, you know, attacks his neighbors, attack, has attacked his neighbors on multiple occasions, has been responsible for literally the you know death and destruction of of of, you know, hundreds of thousands and who has turned the whole thing, you know, has convinced himself maybe and, you know, is displaying to his citizens that this is that he's the victim, that Russia is the victim. So while we're all talking about this rationally and consistent with international law, does that even matter when Putin gets up there and says, you know, this warrant has no effect. And in fact, we're the victims of this aggression. Right. It depends. It depends. There's lots of different ways to look at it and lots of different ways that it plays out. One way it plays out, he might think that, but he also must know that he's in jeopardy if he, you know, tomorrow gets on a plane and travels to London. Right. I mean, you know, he, he, and he won't do it because of that. There's just no question he won't do it. And so it has to affect him, even if he, in his heart, knows he's right. 
you know, there, there's nothing that doesn't help to, be, to know that you're right if the consequence is going to not accept that you're right. And he'll he'll understand that. Um, so the the the, um, the the other thing about it is, even if it doesn't necessarily, you know, I don't know how it affects his psychology or the psychology of any particular person, but even if it doesn't affect what would otherwise be his calculations, it can be affecting the calculations of people around him, people in the field who might be thinking, should I carry out that order or should I resist? I don't want to be a part of this. It can it can um, if word gets through, which it has gotten through, it's in it's in the Russian press that this is happening. It can sort of blemish or tarnish the the um, um, the views of of um, some people, um, maybe enough people within Russia to have some effect on his thinking. And so I, I don't think that it's fair enough. I don't think it's right to say that. Well, just because he doesn't believe it, he can. It doesn't matter to him. It will. It will. Maybe in these peripheral ways, maybe more directly, it will um, affect his. Um, you know the, the 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 field of play for him. Again, that's George Washington Law Professor Todd Buckwald. Professor, thank you very much for the insight today. Thanks very much. Welcome back to the Legal Faceoff podcast on WGN Radio. Let's get to the latest on the trials for animal rights activists. We bring in law professor at the UC College of Law at San Francisco, Hadar Aviram, specializing in criminal justice, civil rights, and social movements, also the author of multiple books and former military defense attorney in Israel. Professor, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you. So, Professor, animal rights activist trials are making the headlines with greater frequency. And as recently as a week ago, two activists, former Baywatch star Alexandra Paul and Alicia Santurio, were facing misdemeanor theft charges and were acquitted by a California jury. They had been accused of stealing two sick chickens from a truck outside of one of Foster Farms slaughterhouses. And they both are members of the animal rights group Direct Action Everywhere and called it a rescue. There was another case in Utah last fall involving the rescue of two piglets from Smithfield Foods, which also involved Direct Action and Direct Action Everywhere animal rights activists. And those two were also acquitted. How much of an impact are these recent cases um, having on the animal rights movement? So in some ways, not a lot of uh, impact and in some ways, a lot of impact. Uh, We have to remember that when juries make decisions to acquit, they don't write down the reasons why they acquitted. And there's no appeal of acquittals. So it's not like we're getting a lot of discourse in the legal system about it. But this is meaningful because this tells us that when ordinary people are exposed to what is happening inside these facilities, they do see these actions as rescue and not as a criminal offense. Professor, we saw Alexandra Paul engage in what's known as open rescue, where the animals were actually taken away and given veterinary care and also documented on video. Explain to us a little bit the, the reasoning behind that method and what other forms of activism are out there. So open rescue is just one form of direct action for animals. Uh, Many listeners probably remember the ALF actions from the 80s and 90s that involved people breaking into fur farms and laboratories. Those folks would walk in masks. They would do it trying not to get caught. Many of these people were fugitives from the law for years. This kind of direct action is very different in the sense that uh, the folks that are performing this are not trying to hide. They're not trying to avoid legal action. 
it's actually the opposite. They're trying to court legal action. So they're showing up, they're showing their face on camera, they're documenting this, they're very open about what they did. Uh, and, and they're actually trying to bring this into legal friction because they want all of us to have a conversation about what's happening with these facilities. And, and that's what makes this a very distinct form of direct action. So, Professor, animals are considered chattel um, and they don't have the status of personhood. And this was, um, you know, brought home to us as recently as the end of last year in the case of Happy the Elephant, where she was denied her release from the Bronx Zoo by the New York Court of Appeals. What impact did that case and the view that animals are chattel, what, what, what impact does that have on the legal strategy in these types of cases? So this is interesting because animals in some ways are regarded as property, but there also are court cases that decide that animals, even though property, are a unique form of property. There's an old case from Oregon, uh, actually not that old, five years ago, that said that uh, uh, it's okay, for example, to take a dog from a family that's abusing the dog and to give the dog a a blood test. The owner of the dog at the time objected and said, this is my property, you can't touch my property, and said, yes, it's property, but it is a unique form of property. It's sentient property. You know, it's a property that can suffer. So so we have this kind of ambivalent, sort of uneasy relationship with sort of what the law tells us and what we actually feel, which is that animals in many ways are like us. They have feelings, they suffer, you know, and, and, and in many ways they, they are like us. I think that a lot of this has to do with kind of like, what are these cases going to do to push forward the idea that animals are not just property? The Happy the Elephant case was uh, a disappointment to a lot of people, but I think it's also a question of where this movement has to put most of its legal energy. And I think the success of the recent uh, uh, rescue cases show that putting that energy in a place of people that are sort of you know, trying to rescue the animals, it's kind of like there's people at the center of this and people are the ones who are on trial, it's bringing in the humanity of the animals, but it's bringing it in kind of like through 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 the back door. But it's also interesting that for these trials, even though the activists, of course, see the animals as sentient beings who deserve to be free, they also have to make arguments from the property world. So in both of these recent trials, for example, uh, the activists have had to say that uh, the animals had no value for, for, for the farm. The reason for this is simple. When you're accused of theft, one of the elements of theft is that the thing that you stole has to have some value for the person that you took it from. So the argument is that the conditions in these facilities are so horrendous and and the animals are so sick and so emaciated that they actually are of no value to the farm. So the activists find themselves in this goofy position of saying the animals are not property, but I kind of have to make a legal argument that treats the animals as property because that's how the law wants to talk about these cases. Professor, in addition to the theft arguments that you've just discussed, uh, some of the theories being pursued in these lawsuits uh, and prosecutions are um, violations of what's known as ag-gag laws, agricultural anti-whistleblower laws, uh, defamation, reputational harm. Uh, What are juries, what are the courts making of these theories and what are your thoughts on them? There is a lot of money, of course, on the other side of these cases, on the side of the factory farms. And because of that, the factory farms are constantly trying to legislate or lobby for legislation that is going to push away these rescuers and and, uh, make their actions illegitimate. And one of the ways that they do this is through these uh, gag laws that prohibits documentation of what's happening inside the facilities. But I think that when ordinary people are presented with the fact that evidence is being hidden from them, they're going to ask themselves questions. Uh, And one of the things that we heard from the jurors in the Smithfield trial was that the fact that there was so much 
uh, uh, suppression of evidence and they weren't given the evidence that they needed actually made them more curious that they were wondering what do these people have to hide. I mean, keep in mind that if there's ever a trial involving an apple orchard, you know, nobody's trying to hide the, 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 the evidence or the footage of how people pick the apples from the tree and, and, you know, how the apple ends up in the supermarket. All of this is openly done. So, so the factory farms have a lot of intent to sort of suppress this evidence, and ag-gag laws are just one way to do it. Courts throughout the country, including in agricultural counties, have found some of these ag-gag laws unconstitutional. Uh, but the, the companies are continuously pouring more and more money, more and more legal energy, more and more resources into trying to block as much of this evidence as possible because they don't want me and you to see how our food ends up on the shelf. Again, that's UC College of the Law at San Francisco, Professor Hadar Aviram. Professor, thank you very much for the insight today. Thank you. You are listening to Christina Martini on Legal Faceoff. Tina is a partner at McDermott, Will & Emery and focuses her practice on domestic and international trademark and copyright law, as well as domain name, internet, social media, advertising, and unfair competition law. Tina has received numerous professional accolades, including an AV preeminent rating by Martindale Hubble and being selected for many years as one of America's leading intellectual property attorneys by various legal publications, including Chambers and Partners and World Trademark Review. Tina is also the recipient of the Anti-Defamation League's Women's of Achievement Award and has been recognized by Crane's Chicago Business as one of Chicago's most influential minority lawyers. In addition to her full-time practice, Tina is an author, columnist, legal analyst, and podcast host, and she frequently shares her thought leadership with respect to current issues and trends impacting both the legal and business landscapes through various media outlets. McDermott, Will & Emery is an integrated international law firm. McDermott has an uncompromising commitment to legal excellence, extraordinary client service, and a high-performance culture. It is committed to helping clients achieve stellar legal and business results today and well into the future. To contact Tina and to learn more about McDermott, Will & Emery, visit mwe.com. Let's get to the legal grab bag here, the Legal Faceoff podcast on WGN Radio. We have two new guests and we start with musical performer, recording artist Nia. You can find out more of her work at niacc13.com. Nia, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Likewise, along with insurance risk manager at Specialized Bicycle Components, Emily Buckley. Emily, thanks for joining us as well. Thanks for having me. Rich, we start off with Donald Trump's 2024 campaign. It's officially begun, so let the content begin. I mean, legally, Trump continues to you know give us content here. Over the weekend, Trump spoke to uh, lots of people at a rally in Waco, um, and he referenced the several... Um, legal cases that are pending against them, right? So right now in New York, there's a grand jury that continues to deliberate, uh, that continue to hear testimony. Last week, we thought Trump himself announced that on Tuesday, he was going to be uh, indicted by Alvin Bragg, who again is the uh, prosecutor in New York that's leading the investigation into the alleged hush money scheme involving payments by former Trump attorney uh, Michael Cohen to Stormy Daniels. That's ongoing. He has not been arrested yet. Um, you know, many think that Trump wants to be arrested. It certainly has helped him politically. I think he's ra- he's raised a record number uh, amount of money in the wake of that. There's been lots of discussion over the weekend about whether Trump will bring his own handcuffs right for that photo op. Um, so that's going on in New York. We expect there to be an indictment imminently, uh, although many have criticized that investigation, Tina, as being the wrong one. Right. I mean, that's a little bit sketchy legally as to whether he even committed a misdemeanor. Uh, in, you know, authorizing this payment, um, whether that 
turning that misdemeanor into a felony is over uh, overstepping whether the statute of limitations on this alleged 70-year-old crime has expired. So that's that. What's also interesting legally is that uh, on Friday in the Mar-a-Lago investigation as to whether Trump um, not only took records home, but, you know, covered up uh, that alleged crime, there's a a judge ruled that his attorney could testify. Um, Now, you might think, well, how can an attorney testify about alleged discussions with his client, Donald Trump? What's interesting legally is the judge invoked uh, the uh, crime fraud exception, which one of you might have heard about on like law and order and stuff. It's like when you tell your you tell your attorney, uh, I'm going to murder someone. And the attorney has the dilemma. Should I maintain the privilege that exists between an attorney and client to ensure secrecy in their in their discussions? Or do I go report it to the cops? In this case, the judge ruled that that attorney could testify and should testify despite the attorney client privilege. What that means, everyone, is that a judge decided that Trump committed a crime. You can't invoke that exception unless you decide that there's enough evidence that Trump committed a crime. In our world, that like that just you know flows over people. But think about it: the former pre- a judge, not for the first time, by the way, has decided that the former president of the United States has committed a crime. Mind blowing stuff. Um, there's other, of course, pending investigations. There's um, you know several others, but these are the most pressing ones. So. Tina, were you surprised that the judge said it's okay for Trump's uh, attorney to testify about the discussions he had with him? Um, A bit, yeah, because of the same thing you just mentioned, um, Rich, and it's not an exception that is taken lightly by judges. And as you said, you know, there has to have been a crime in the mind of the judge who's making this decision in order for the exception to apply. And my other observation about all of this is we've watched sort of the Teflon capabilities of our former president over the last several years when it comes to charges being brought against him. And I agree with you that the whole Stormy Daniels um, thing is is not really necessarily the strongest case for a whole host of reasons. But I have to believe to a certain extent that this is all being done if for nothing else, to try to ruin his chances at the 2024 election in the hopes that maybe this will sway people's votes at least enough that he is not successful in his election attempt. At least that's my theory on all of this. Well, it's an interesting point. And Emily will bring you in on this because, you know, if you think about it, I mean, Trump lost the last election. There's no question he lost it, despite what he and, you know, many other of his allies think. But it's not like if you look at all of the uh, legal wrangling going on and the you know uh, risk that he faces, um, is he going to get more votes than last time? Because of it? I mean, is there any single person that's going to look at his situation that didn't vote for him last time and think, well, I'm going to vote for him now uh, in the wake of this? Probably not. So in the grand scheme of things, he's probably not helping himself. He's only hurting himself. He's probably going to lose worse than he lost last time. I, I agree, Rich. Um, although I, I think that his current followers are, you know, it, it's only going to solidify um, their commitment to him. Yeah. Do you think we're going to see uh, Trump in, in handcuffs anytime soon? Or, you know, if you've been following the story, do you think it's a bit of a stretch? Again, legally, there's probably some other cases like the one where he said, you know, in Georgia, that I got to find more votes. That's probably a stronger case. None of these cases are slam dunks, right? I mean, there's there's a reason that former presidents have not been uh, indicted before, right? These are very difficult cases. They're fraught with political 
um, and, and, you know, social dynamics that make it very impossible to, to win. Um, but what are your thoughts on if he will face jeopardy on any of these cases? Yeah, I think it is a bit of a stretch. I don't see it happening. I don't see his followers allowing it to happen unless he uses this moment to be a martyr. I think that's really important to him. And I think also the issue isn't necessarily people deciding to vote for him in light of everything happening, but the legislation around voting and what that looks like and how that impacts who wins this next election. So I think it'll be really interesting to watch how it plays out. Yeah, it's a great point. I mean, if if you're right, this all has the effect of probably emboldening his supporters. I mean, again, over the weekend, it's hard to even say it's hard to believe this stuff is happening. But Trump, you know, in the wake of what happened in January, um, he played a video of, you know, the convicted uh, uh, Capitol rioter singing the national anthem. He also released a uh, picture of himself holding a baseball bat next to uh, the Manhattan D.A. He also called him an animal. I mean, you can't believe these things are, are still happening, but they continue to happen. So I think you're right. Both sides will be emboldened. Hopefully those who are opposing Trump will be emboldened to go out and, and vote next time. Tina, we move on to something we've been following for quite some time now, the Murdoch double murder trial. But uh, this is the first time we've reached the estate sale of the situation. Yeah, Joe. So as you said, we've been covering this story extensively over the past couple of years. And Just when we thought that the saga was maybe coming to a close, there was yet another chapter to it late last week. On Thursday afternoon, people from all over attended the Liberty Auction in Georgia of all the items that were originally inside the Murdoch property called Moselle, as many of us who were watching the trial came to know well. Apparently, Murdoch's sister-in-law, Christy, came to collect some of the family's belongings before they were auctioned off. The auction lasted about six hours, and by the end of it, all of the items were sold. And the auctioneer said it was by far the largest auction he has ever seen, and that it was a bit of a buying frenzy. While they're still trying to do a full accounting of the sales, um, some of these items sold for ridiculously high sums. For example, a Yeti cup, which retails for about $30, sold for $400. Mounted antlers went for $10,000, and one of the furniture sets went for $30,000. There were some very personal items, including things like monogrammed pillows um, and other things like picture frames that once hung on the walls of the estate. There was also, in what I consider to be a bit of a tasteless act, a large rack of hunting equipment that was auctioned off. In the ultimate stroke of capitalism during the auction, we had people selling concessions, um, including hot dogs and pecans and vegetables, which, you know, just, I think, really emphasizes what a voyeuristic um, episode and escapade this whole thing has been. Interestingly, the estate itself, the actual property, Moselle, sold the same day for $3.9 million dollars. And the family's beachfront property was also recently sold. And portions of the proceeds are going to go to Buster Murdoch, the the surviving son. And there will also be an apportionment of proceeds to a couple of other family members, but also um, to deal with legal fees and to deal with um, the civil suits from the boat crash involving Murdoch's son. So, Rich... um, Crazy stuff. People want their stuff to commemorate the murder trial. Yeah, the turtle lamps, the crossbow that was seen in one of the body cam videos, the, of course, the alibi coach, 
$36,000 alibi couch that Murdoch said he was uh, napping on when the alleged or when now proven murders took took place. Um, Yeah, I mean, listen, you could say that this is a reflection of how we are as a society and how, uh, you know, desensitized we are to the savage murderers of 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 a wife and the son. Um, it's also interesting that, you know, some of the proceeds are going to Buster, who is now the subject of another investigation, right? The the case involving his his friend that uh, was first thought to be a hit and run victim has now been uh, called a murder victim. Um, Buster is a suspect in that. He's denied any, any wrongdoing, including quite prominently on a jailhouse recording with him and his father, in which they're saying, oh, isn't it true that we weren't involved in that crime, right? I mean, uh, that's a little suspicious, but... Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, uh, all these household items become suddenly, you know, much more valuable to uh, to those of us who are fascinated by true crime. Emily, I know you're in that category. You've been following this case very closely. Would you pay, uh, you know, anything for the turtle lamps? I would not. Um, and, you know, this made me think back to um, O.J. Simpson and like what, right. you know, if, if this was the O.J. Simpson case and his items were being auctioned off with the, would this have happened back then? And, and would people have paid four hundred dollars for a, a thermos that was O.J. Simpson's? Maybe because he was a famous football player back then. But uh, just reading some of the comments from um, some of the people that were there and, and, and had items. I mean, these are trophies they're buying to display in their, in their homes and their businesses. Yeah. I mean, that's the problem, right? Is that, you know, they're being sold off as, as trophies and these are, you know, uh, things that are commemorating uh, these two victims, but yeah, I don't think you can look at the, this auction or look at our fascination with this case without thinking of sort of the broader implications of, the fact that this was really a case in many ways about about class, right? The difference between you know the haves and have-nots, and the you know the arrogance uh, that the jury I think uh, saw in Murdaugh in uh, killing his wife and child to cover up his financial improprieties. By the way, uh, ninety-nine of which he still faces liability for. So I think part of what's going on in this auction is the people you know people continuing to be fascinated by what goes on behind closed doors of the rich and powerful of which, you know, the Murtaugh's were, were certainly part of. Yeah. I'm somebody who also, I watched the Netflix documentary. I listened to the podcast. And so I understand the fascination, but the sens- the sensational, oh, sorry, sens- I don't know what I'm trying to say. Basically, <laughs> it's crazy to me how people are just allowing this to be something like it's a prize. And I wonder if, speaking of class, if people feel like this is their revenge, like now I own part of something that the elite once owned. Um, I'm not sure, but it is really concerning, especially with all these documentaries coming out about killers. Like now is it a great thing to be a killer because you'll be famous and you'll get a Netflix documentary and people will buy your things. It's something we should definitely start to consider more. It's a great point. You know, I mean, all of the, I mean, the Dahmer, I mean, Dahmer had a, you know, a very well-received documentary or uh, narrative story on Netflix. Um, you know, Evan Peters won, I think, uh, a Golden Globe for it. But in many ways, I mean, if you're a victim of Jeffrey Dahmer, if you're a victim of the Murdoch's, uh, are you happy that people are making money off these tragic events? So let's talk about another murder then. As a dentist is accused of poisoning his wife, Rich. Yeah, you know, we've covered stories like this a lot, but it continues to, you know, bewilder and and fascinate me that, um, speaking of hubris, speaking of like, you know, stupid people who commit crimes, uh, this uh, dentist who has been charged with 
murdering his wife in Colorado uh, by way of a, a spike protein shake um, with uh, potassium cyanide and, and, and uh, other products uh, that he gave her allegedly, you know, it's been revealed that he looked up, not only did he order these products to spike her drink and that ultimately led to her death allegedly, but he would look up things like, you know, uh, how long cyanide lasts in the body. Um, uh, six, one of the searches was uh, six deadly undetectable poisons and how to detect them. Uh, that's all according to the affidavit. So we've seen this before, um, you know, with other uh, alleged murderers where their online searches, their history, uh, you know, tends to incriminate them. So I, I still don't understand how this is happening. I mean, don't these people know about, I don't know, uh, the Internet, the World Wide Web, this thing that we have in front of us that's traceable? How dumb can you be to look up, you know, how long cyanide stays in your body? Uh, when your wife dies of cyanide, he also texted her. It's been revealed and alleged in the affidavit. Um, after she told him that she felt like she was drugged, he said, just for the record, I did not drug you. I mean, again, does he think <laughs> the whole world is stupid that the police are going to see that text and think, oh, let's roll this guy out. He texted her that he didn't drug her. Let's move on to the next guy because he can't be guilty. Oh, yeah, yeah. Tina. Like these guys got to read uh, "Murder for Dummies" or something because they're they're obviously not <laughs> not doing it very effectively. Yeah, or watch Law and Order or something, just yeah. something to educate yourself on what not to do. Yeah, he's probably pretty proud of himself that he actually didn't do these searches on his computer at home, thinking that no one would ever look at the computer at work to figure out what could have possibly happened here. I mean, it, it it's remarkable to me that. This guy, I mean, and again, I think that he probably thought he was being clever, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah, we've got like, you know, uh, uh, you know, having an affair with the other woman, check. We have the the, the searches, check. We have order, who orders cyanide? By the way, how do you even buy cyanide? Like cyanide, like does, does Amazon have a cyanide section? I don't know. It's not something that I would think you would want delivered in the in the mail, but. This guy made a lot of dumb mistakes, it seems like. Yeah, just completely. It can't get more black and white. This is really dumb on your behalf than this. Yeah, Emily, I mean, again, you love true crime. I know you follow a lot of these stories. Um, you know, you don't want to make light of a murder or anything, but, uh, you know, you would, you would seem it would seem to, to be that if you wanted to commit murder and didn't want to get caught, these are not the steps to take. Well, this case is really interesting. Apparently, uh, it has come out that he tried to poison her a number of years back. Right. Um, so this isn't his first time doing it. And I believe it was his office manager or an assistant. Someone in, in his office found the the cyanide that came in and alerted authorities to that. So, so um, I think a, a lot more is going to come out. Um, when we get into the nitty gritty of the investigation here, but I mean, it kind of goes back to the, uh, the murder. Like, are these people not watching true crime documentaries? Like web search 101. <laughs> exactly. Clear your history, Joe. We know that. you know. Yeah. That. <laughs> well, I, I, think Tina, I think Tina brings up a good point. Like how different would law and order episodes be nowadays? She's like, Oh, let's just look at their history online. Oh, okay. Yeah. Guilty. I mean, before you, you've actually got to do some legwork, you got to ask people, you got to uh, investigate the, the crime scene and the history all on your own. So 
I always wonder on Law and Order, like how it is that every witness they talk to, every potential suspect is walking away, not paying attention to them. You ever notice that every time the cops interview a suspect, they're always walking, doing something more important. How about spending two minutes and actually talking to the cops about your wife being dead in a pool of blood at the bottom of the stairs? Instead, they're walking to the auto body shop. They're doing errands. It's like, how about just stopping for Christ's sake? Or like we talk about everyone being so infatuated with murders. I mean, if, if two cops stop me on the street and be like, hey, you might have some information that we need to know. I'm like, oh, yeah, let's let's figure this out. How can I help? What, what can I provide? All right. Uh, here, here's a sentence I never thought I'd have to read for research for work. Gwyneth Paltrow skied out of control, Rich. That's what the actor's trial has begun. And she's denying any of it. I love this. I actually literally I know this. I mean, I'm, I'm a geek for this kind of stuff. But I watched her entire testimony from beginning to end. It wasn't that long. It was like two hours over the weekend. But I couldn't turn. Away. I mean, literally, it was better than, you know, any episode of Glee that she was on or talent from Mr. Ripley or any of the uh, Iron Man movies. It was fascinating. And by the way, like the Internet is breaking. Everyone is doing memes of her, her facial expressions and her coming and going and what she's wearing. Right. She's She's wearing a lot of our goop clothes to court. This is a trial in Park City, Utah. And as you mentioned, Joe, the allegation, um, she's the, this is a, a civil trial. She's being sued by an individual, 75-year-old guy, basically, who says that she skied into him at Deer Valley. Now, I've skied Deer Valley. It's a beautiful hill. It's very uh, expensive. Uh, people like Gwyneth Paltrow ski there. He says that unwitnessed, she skied into him, resulting in, you know, uh, uh, life-altering injuries to his brain and his back. His daughter testified that he's not the same person. She has countersued for a dollar. I think his claim is like 750000 Her claim is a dollar plus attorney's fees. And she's saying that uh, she was the victim, that she was stationary, and that he uh, slammed into her back and that she was injured. Um, so it's a really interesting back and forth. Again, no witnesses to the actual event, no video. Uh, there's a couple of, um, you know, ski instructors who are involved. I learned that it costs $10,000 at Deer Valley to uh, instruct your children to ski. Um, I also learned that, uh, that Gwyneth Paltrow is, prefers, um, you know, blue uh, hills than, than black hills. But uh, we'll see. Again, like there's this whole class thing involved, Tina, where, you know, people like to see the rich pay. They like to see them get their comeuppance. Like I said, a lot of people on Twitter and TikTok are uh, making fun of how she is interacting with her attorneys, the facial expression she's making. She ordered, her attorneys ordered a camera that was stationary on her to be removed. Um, but I don't know. I heard her testify. He testifies, I think, today. She was pretty credible, but she's an actor. You know, she's supposed to be good at this kind of stuff. There goes Joe. Well, <laughs> well uh, you know, Rich, I um, I don't know. I agree with you that she seems to be credible. I also think, though, that sometimes the facial expressions actually can be the very undoing of what is otherwise credible testimony. I also think I read somewhere that this guy's you know, mental condition was actually um, something that he already was displaying signs of before the you know alleged collision. And so I think that that's a pretty critical piece to this puzzle is trying to establish that he had this underlying condition going into the incident that, you know, maybe he wouldn't be exact, you know, like, let's say for the moment he did fall. Um, my sense from what I read is that he had he had a condition going in that may be manifesting in the same way that he is 
chalking up to the collision. So um, I don't know. I agree with you. People try to make um, stars pay here. Um, and, you know, here there are no witnesses. So it is going to have to it's going to be relying on the the credibility of the testimony and people's stories and how good of witnesses each side has. All right, Nia, Emily, I've got some great quotes from uh, Gwyneth. Are you ready? From from last week. Uh, she said, well, I lost a half day of skiing. You know, in, in comparison to what this guy's alleging, she said, well, you know, I did lose a half day of skiing. By the way, she went for a massage right after this. So um, I'm not sure how bad it could. That massage probably costs like five grand, by the way. She also said, um, she said, uh, she told Sanderson that she skied, that he skied into her effing back. She said, I apologize for my bad language. That's not my custom. She also talked about Taylor Swift. She said, I would not say we're a good friend. We are friendly. I've taken my kids to one of our concerts before, but we don't talk very often. Um, she said, I'm just under five feet 10, but I'm shrinking. And then uh, she also complimented the uh, the prosecuting attorney, not the, the, the plaintiff's lawyer, and saying that she, she was wearing very nice heels to the courtroom that day. So I don't know. I don't know how all that's being taken by the jury. But again, I listened to her. And I think I'm a pretty good observant of uh, witnesses' credibility and demeanor. And I thought she testified, testified really credibly, pretty consistently. You know, she was well coached. She did continue to say she almost ended every sentence with, yes, but Mr. Sanderson skied directly into my back. So there's a skill to saying that without sending to a hearse. I thought she did pretty well. But Emily, you're also in the business of, you know, determining whether people are being uh, um, credible or not. And I don't know if you saw any of her testimony. I did. I think she is very credible. Um I personally don't like the plaintiff. Um, I and I don't. The complaint, in my opinion, wasn't well written. He did have a pre-existing brain injury. Um, I, I think he is going after her because uh, because she is famous. I mean, the press conference in two thousand nine announcing his lawsuit. You would he would even though he said he would have he would not have done that if I hit him because people wouldn't have cared. Um, and I, Tina, to, to your point, uh, people always want to see, you know, the rich and famous pay. I have to assume that this is, um, being an insurance company, maybe a homeowner's insurance policy or something like that is protecting her. And I would have to assume that the, the 3 million he's asking for is not going to be coming out of her pocket. Yeah, that's a good point too. Um, yeah, you know, one thing that the uh, the attorneys trying to do is what the, what, is what attorneys do, like catch Gwyneth Paltrow on any kind of lie, big or small, and argue that because she's lying on something small, she's not credible. One one thing that they pointed out was that she said at some point in her deposition earlier, by the way, the depositions were a few years ago, that, you know, I, I'm accident prone. I think they played a clip from like a talk show where she said I'm accident prone. She denied that on the stand. They're trying to establish, well, if you're accident prone, you're probably you know, responsible for this accident, but I don't know. I don't know if you've seen any of her testimony, what your thoughts are on her credibility or generally how a jury would perceive a a celebrity like this. You know, I think they're probably just happy that I'm not a part of the jury because I love Gwyneth Paltrow. Um, I would definitely be biased. And so it's hard for me to watch these celebrity cases and actually disassociate the crime from the person. Um, But I hope she didn't do it. I really hope she did it. (laughs) Well, it's interesting, you know, because Joe, like, Nia uh, raised a great point. Like, as a celebrity, more apt to impress the jury uh, and and you know gain their sympathies, or do you think that there's a good chance that jury looks at any celebrity and think, 
man, they can afford to pay and, and look at them. And I want to sort of knock them off their pedestal a little bit. I guess you could go both ways on that. Yeah. And I feel like it would have to, the jury's opinion of that certain actor heading into the lawsuit plays a, a big role in it as well. But I don't know. I could see actors definitely being enticed by it because it's, it's kind of like acting whether they're lying or not, you know, just trying to, to prove their case and, and prove their worth and, uh, make people side with them. So I don't know. I, I could see it going both ways. The main takeaway I got from this whole thing, Rich, is you ski at the same place as Gwen Paltrow. So right. Well, you know, she said she she they asked her if people recognize you, and she said, you know, sometimes she goes there and she she wears a helmet and everything to be not recognized, but sometimes the paparazzi sees her. But Tina, the biggest problem is, you know, as a skier myself, she's missing all this powder. Park City is getting literally like record amounts of snow. They haven't seen this amount of snow in like a hundred years. So everyone's enjoying the ski hill while she's, uh, she's in court. Well, Tina, let's move from. No, you might be joining us from Utah. I think there, I think the, the snow is affecting your reception over there. Yeah. <laughs> I'm seeing oh. a lot of snow. <laughs> uh, also like Gwyneth Paltrow, I only allow a certain isolated camera on me for so long. Yes. So that, that's what the whole thing is there. As right on cue. Uh, let's go to Lindsay Lohan. May not be a mean girl, Tina, but she is being sued for crypto sale lawsuits. Yeah, Joe. So we've been following many of the recent cryptocurrency tales here on Legal Faceoff and the celebrities who have been caught up in SEC troubles as a result. Last fall, we talked about Kim Kardashian and how she used her Instagram account to tout a cryptocurrency without mentioning that she was paid to promote it. Lindsay Lohan is just one of any number of celebs who very recently became targets of SEC investigations as a result of not following the agency's disclosure requirements with regard to promoting cryptocurrency. You need to disclose that you're paid to do so before doing it. From the outset, it looks like Lindsay Lohan has agreed and cooperated with the SEC and actually disgorged the money, which means she paid it back and the money that she received for doing it. And she actually paid a fine without admitting to any wrongdoing. She said that she wasn't aware of the disclosure requirements until after she had promoted the crypto assets. The SEC also recently charged Chinese cryptocurrency entrepreneur Justin Sun with fraud, as well as a number of other celebrities who illegally promoted his crypto assets. Um, altogether, it looks like um, all but a couple of these celebrities agreed to settle, and together they paid um, a bit more than $400,000. Well, Rich, hopefully, um, with all of this press that has been um, going on with these celebrities who have promoted crypto assets, the rest of them who are interested in Promoting cryptocurrency will actually be watching the news and will know that there are certain SEC requirements when you actually promote these types of crypto assets. Yeah, I mean, it's a really interesting series of, of uh, legal questions involved in these stories, Tina, and, you know, a little bit too much to discuss right here. But I mean, you know, like you think, I don't know, do you think like in the, in the, in the 40s and 50s, um, the celebrities who were endorsing like, you know, cigarettes were thinking of the liability involved in doing so. I mean, these days we're seeing a lot of these actions against celebrities who are involved in crypto. And uh, I think, you know, the fact that uh, Lindsay Lohan uh, got out quickly is indicative of some liability, you know, some some issues there. I mean, Emily and I just got back from a, 
you know, a seminar in Colorado dealing with sports and entertainment reputational risk, right? I mean, uh, these are not good for the reputations of celebrities. They want to get out from under it quickly. And there's some much bigger celebrities, no offense to Lindsay Lohan. We all love uh, Mean Girls and Parent Trap, um, but there are much bigger celebrities involved. But um, so probably a good idea to get out from under it quickly. Nia, this is your era. Are you, are you a Lilo fan? What's your favorite Lindsay Lohan? film if you have my favorite Lindsay Lohan movie is definitely trap I just rewatched it this weekend so it's funny that you mentioned this but on the whole I'm just always asking where are your lawyers like did nobody give you any advice before you made this decision it's so painful and I really want them to look at the people around themselves and at around them and ask them is this are these people who actually care about me or do they want me to fail because this also seems like something that would be obvious absolutely hire more lawyers is the takeaway Joe Lindsay Lohan, you love a Herbie, I know. You love Herbie the the love bug, right? Uh, No, but um, I I know this is low-hanging fruit, but Mean Girls isn't just one of my favorite Lindsay Lohan movies. It's one of my favorite movies of all time. It's one of the movies that my wife and I probably quote the most. Actually, my wife's quote in the yearbook is, that's why her hair is so big, it's full of secrets. So, I mean, we, we, we know the movie to a T, despite my uh inability to be just housing a, a regular internet connection right now well joe i i was gonna say that uh your internet connection is not fetch at all it's the opposite of fetch yeah and my father the inventor of toaster strudels will not be happy about this whatsoever uh tina i hate to talk ill of rabbits being so close to easter but this one's name is literally bad bunny and he's being sued by his ex-girlfriend Yeah, Joe. So last week, news broke that Bad Bunny's ex-girlfriend is suing him for at least $40 million over his alleged use of a recording of her voice that she claims he used in two of his songs without her permission. So the couple date back to 2011 when they first started dating and they were actually going to get married in 2016. They broke up, got back together, and then they broke up for good in 2017. And I think this is probably a pretty important fact because I think there would be no lawsuit if they were still together. His ex-girlfriend, Carlise de la Cruz Hernandez, claimed she recorded the phrase Bad Bunny Baby on her phone back when they were together in 2015, sent it to him, and she claims that this voice recording was featured on his songs Pati and Dos Mil Sixteen, or that would be DSE says or siete. Yeah, says. And he didn't get her permission to do so. The complaint states that a representative for Bad Bunny actually offered to buy the rights for $2,000 in May of last year. And it was around the same time that his album with these songs was released. Um, that offer was rejected and Bad Bunny went ahead anyway with releasing these recordings. Interestingly, the lawsuit also says that De La Cruz has a distinguishable voice that's been used across many media, and that's also been without her permission. And this is where I think the complaint jumps the shark just a little bit. The complaint then goes from saying that her voice is used across all these different media without her permission to saying that thousands of people have commented directly on her social networks Um, as well as every time she goes to a public place about the use of her voice in this unauthorized way. And then it's caused her to feel worry, anguish, intimidation, overwhelm, and anxiety. 
and that the situation has become so unmanageable that she's actually had to seek the help of psychiatrists to deal with it. So, Rich, I mean, you and I have talked so much about the unauthorized use of people's songs, um, things that identify them, things like their voice. But I think that this goes quite far in terms of the purported psychological turmoil that this puts her through. Yeah, that part seems like nonsense, of course. But, you know, what interested me is there was an offer made, right, uh, in, tw- in May of 2022 to mm-hmm. sign over the rights of her voice for 2000 bucks. She rejected it. So, I mean, she rejected it. That means she asked for something. We have to know more details. But if she rejected it without countering, then presumably it's up for grabs, right? Um, Well, you know, it's interesting you say that because when I've had similar situations, um, often in the brand context, if you make an offer like that, like if you try to get a letter of consent or you, you know, offer to pay somebody for something like the rights to um, a form of IP, if they say no, and you do it anyway, the fact that you asked in the first place can actually be used against you and can actually be used to try to establish a case of intentional infringement. So I agree with you. We need more facts, but I think that's one p- potential interpretation of the situation. Sure. Yeah, no, I get that. I'm just wondering if if there was any counter, if she you know, said, no, I don't want 2000, I want something. I mean, presumably that'll come out in discovery. But yeah, I mean, listen, I don't think she needs to allege anything aside from the money. I mean, Bad Buddy was the highest grossing tour last year. You know, the tour made like a half billion dollars. So I don't think she needs to, um, you know, uh, add these allegations of psychological damage. It's just a money thing. And if he agreed to, if, if he used it without her consent, I think he's got some liability there. Nia, this is your base. We'll get to Emily in a second too. But, um, you know, listen, we cover a lot of these stories a lot. And uh, anytime there's a successful artist, it seems to be someone who's coming out saying that you copied my song. You use my voice, you use my lyrics, something like that. Uh, that might be just part of the business these days. And you got to account for that when you're you know, coming up with compensation. But what are your thoughts on this one? I mean, I think no matter how much you love somebody, you always sign a contract point blank. That is the most important lesson. Like I have a partner right now who I've used in some of my lyrics and I've been like, yeah, I need you to sign because what happens after this? And so um, I know all the time it can't be a preventative measure, but that is one that you can take. But I mean, what are you going to do? He used her voice recording. I think it's as easy, as blank as that, as period, as clear as that. So, yeah, sign the contracts. <laughs> right. Emily. Um, I would like to get a little bit more information over the the uh, the voice recording. Like, why did she record it? Did he ask her to record it? Was it like a? I read somewhere that she recorded it in a bathroom with her friend. Like, did he ask her to do this to, to use on one of his songs? Which, was this just a a flirty message she sent him. That's kind of where my mind goes reading this is why was this recording a recorded and sent to him? Tina. Yeah, for sure. Uh, The the artist's name is Benito Antonio Martinez Ocasio. Now is bad buddy. I mean, what's the value of the term bad buddy? If she did in fact come up with it and that's his moniker now, and that's imagine the value of that, right? I mean, that, that's, that could be a, a big payday. Yeah, absolutely. I guess uh, we'll see how this one turns out. My guess it's going to settle. They're not going to want to take this to trial. No way. I would I would ask everyone their favorite Bad Bunny song, but um, might be might be tougher. Yeah, yeah. I think we should probably go to the next story. Uh-huh. <laughs> let's, let's, let's go well, to another one. Emily and Nia, I try to stop my friends here always with uh, naming their favorite song and 
Sometimes, you know, sometimes there's duplicates, but I, I will admit I don't know a lot of Bad Bunny songs, but very talented guy. I'm surprised you know a Bad Bunny song. Uh, let's go to another artist that's, of course, right when I start talking, that, that's got to be what it is. Um, let me uh, fix the rabbit ears here on my computer. Um, uh, Tina Taylor Swift worried about a copyright infringement, but now she can thankfully shake it off as the lawsuit was dropped weeks before the trial. Yeah, Joe. So like many no, other way, your, your, your segue talents hasn't the Internet hasn't hurt your segue abilities. So like many other celebrities, Taylor Swift has had her share of lawsuits where she's been both plaintiff and defendant. More recently, after five years of battling it out with songwriters Nathan Butler and Sean Hall, the parties reached a settlement to the Shake It Off lawsuit that was headed for trial a few weeks back. Back in 2017, Butler and Hall claimed that Swift's lyrics in Shake It Off were identical to their song Play Is Gonna Play, which was performed by the girl group 3LW back in 2001. Swift claims that she never heard of the lyrics or the song and probably was pretty unlikely that she would have given how young she was when the song was popular. She also made a really good point about how this phrasing comes from everyday language and popular vernacular and that this wording is similar to other commonly used phrases like don't hate the play, I hate the game, take a chill pill and say it, don't spray it. Apparently, the only overlap in the lyrics is play as they going to play and haters they going to hate in the 3LW song. And in, in Taylor Swift's song, because the player's going to play, 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 and the hater's going to hate, 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 which if you ask me, Rich, there's really not all that much overlap there. In the meantime, other litigations, uh, Taylor Swift fans are in court in Los Angeles in a hearing today in the lawsuit they filed against Ticketmaster after the Ticketmaster system crashed during sales of uh, Taylor Swift's current tour, alleging fraud, price fixing, and violations of antitrust law. They also claim intentionally inflated prices by selling to scalpers and misleading of customers. They held a dance party and rally last night to get everybody psyched for today's hearing. Interestingly, um, Drake fans recently sued for a similar problem when they went to buy Drake tickets on Ticketmaster. So, so Rich, um, the, the litigation lives on for Taylor Swift and her fans. Yeah, the most disturbing part was she denied ever listening to Now That's What I Call Music, either six or seven. Who hasn't listened to Now That's What I Call Music? That goes back to everyone. The other thing is you mentioned, I mean, player, players going to play is a big one. Sprayer's going to spray? I thought, I, thought I thought that's only for old Jews. Don't say like it, me. don't spray it. Or say it, don't spray it. I thought that's only for old Jewish men like me who spit when they talk, but I wasn't aware that was a common one. But um, Nia, again, this is your wheelhouse. I mean, uh, do you think these are commonly used phrases or are they, did she pilfer them from this artist? Yeah, this is a case I followed really closely because I love Taylor Swift and I really love that 3LW song. Um, I don't think she stole it. It's just such a generic term. You can't copyright. I mean, maybe that's something that we talk about in the future, but copywriting generic terms that we use every single day. Who owns that? Um, if you are able to do that, I would love to do it. I'll be the first one at the copyright office signing up and suing everybody, but we're just not at a place where we're doing that right now. And so I think it's really a stretch to say that she took those lyrics when it's just general vernacular. Yeah, Emily, I mean, 
again, a good case to probably just throw a little bit of money at and get rid of it. Although it was dropped. I mean, for credit, she's shown, as Tina's mentioned, a willingness to litigate these issues. She's she doesn't back down from uh, from litigation as big as she is. I think you could also, you know, thank the Swifties for this. The Swifties are the strongest force on earth. Let's let's face it. Don't get a, don't f with the Swifties, right? Yes, of course. And I was it was it dismissed or um, it reached? Dis- I, yeah, I think that it was dismissed. Actually, I think that they may have reached some sort of a settlement um, because I think that there were papers filed to get this dismissed. I know that the um, the, the writing credits for the song haven't changed at all. So that was clearly not part of whatever resolution was reached. Yeah, I read it as there was pro- they her team probably threw some money at the problem and <laughs> looking forward. Well, Joe, with that, we're going to turn it over to someone who's, you know, on the same par with our friends, Bad Bunny and Taylor Swift. Nia is an amazing recording artist. Uh, I would do a little work with her and, uh, would like to hear from her latest recording. She's amazing. Nia, what are you going to play for us today? I'm going to play for you guys my new single, Covetous, um, which is, speaking of my partner, uh, this is one of the songs where I really used something that he had told his mom. So yeah, it's a song called Covetous, um, and I love it because I'm teaching right now, and so I love using new words that a lot of people aren't usually familiar with. Um, and I won't play the whole thing, since I don't know if we have time for the whole thing. But I can definitely play you guys part of it if you'd like. That would be awesome. Can't wait. They don't tell you in the movies that we watch when we were young that the heroes in your life are just the villains you become because they told you they fought evil when the truth is they're the same. Touching black and white as good guys when we're living in the gray. Cause you don't get all that you wanted without others having lost. Every hero makes a profit off their chosen villain's cost. Oh no, said it's a covetous world now. Yeah. And that is part of my song, Covetous. <laughs> So I hope you guys enjoyed it. You can stream it now. It's on all streaming platforms. It's Covetous by Nia CC. Fantastic. Yeah, Nia, and anywhere else that people can get your music, just anywhere where people typically yeah. get all streaming platforms, Spotify. You can also find it on YouTube, um, Apple Music, the Google one that I'm not, Google Play. I think that's what it's called. I never use Google Play. So um, also on my website, niacc13.com, you can find all my music and I have some new music coming out in a few weeks. So stay tuned. <laughs> Great Instagram feed. Follow her on Instagram. Very active. Amazing, amazing talent. Nia, thank you so much. And Emily, now it's your turn. No, I forget it. We're going to turn it over to Emily for a follow-up on Jolene, but we'll leave that to the memories of our friends in uh, in Colorado Springs. Thank you. Well, a big thanks to Emily. Big thanks to Nia. Again, feel free to check her out on social media and wherever you get your music as well. Big thanks to our earlier guests here on the Legal Faceoff podcast, Professor Hadar Aviram, George Freeman, and Professor Todd Buckwald. For Rich Lenkoff, Tina Martini, I am the on digital Joe Brand. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and share the Legal Faceoff podcast. Please give us five stars. Also, our producers, Yvonne Barbosa and Ben Anderson for making this whole thing go around as well. For Tina Martini and Rich Lenkoff, I'm Joe Brand. This is Legal Faceoff Podcast. We'll talk to you in a couple of weeks. It's Christina Martini and Rich Lenkoff. You know what time it is. Welcome to Legal Faceoff. 
Two lawyers trading jab for jab. So hit them up with any questions you have. WGN Radio, we blowing up your stereo. Got a question? Just pick up the phone and they'll let you know. Covering sports, Hollywood, and don't forget.